Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. And this is a terrifically special episode for one very specific reason. We have your returning champion, the undefeated, occasional co-host of the Marginless Trap Show Podcast Hour, the lovely, the beautiful, the talented, the brilliant, the beta reading, Miss Chanel Chaco. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad he finally let me get in front of a microphone and talk. <laughs> you were you were going kind of crazy. You were bouncing off the walls a little bit. I was. I kind of missed it. Apparently, I talk a lot, and <laughs> when nobody's listening, it hurts my feelings. You were all backed up. I was. I had to. <laughs> had to let my word load out. And uh, uh, one of the uh, ironic things about that, is <laughs> I just heard what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I just laughed at myself. Uh, luckily, oh. you laughed at your joke because it cued me to, to replay <laughs> what you just said in my head. That was funny. I was expecting something for a word load. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you a tissue. <laughs> uh, when when uh, when we very first started the podcast, even before we launched the podcast. And I floated the idea to uh, to Chanel that that yeah I'd want her to be part of it and I wanted her to be uh, my occasional co-host. Like I knew she wouldn't be on every episode, partly because uh, she's got you know she's she's got a schedule that's different than mine, so she wouldn't necessarily be able to do every episode that I did. But also I, I figured you know she'd never podcasted before. She she can believe it or not be shy every now and again so in my mind i I think i felt like i was letting you off the hook like you'll be like an occasional co-host and you kind of went along with it and uh but like now now it's like if we go a couple episodes without you you, you're you're freaking out yeah i get jealous he has all these guests and you know (laughs) i listen and i think oh i i would have asked this i want to be on the show (laughs) yeah sometimes yeah I'll, i'll be interviewing somebody and you're not home while I'm interviewing them, but then you'll you'll pop in on your lunch break or wherever you're coming from during an interview, and uh, and and I could see that uh, that you know you're you're watching us. You see the the podcast happening. And <laughs> I do. You start salivating. <laughs> you pretend. In fact, I think uh, I think you know exactly what's happening. Like you don't. You know, up until right this second, I assumed those were all accidental interruptions. <laughs> no, that was my cry for attention. <laughs> you timed those perfectly. You were like outside, waiting. listening, waiting. And then once you heard the show going, then you pop in. I actually have the whole apartment bugged so I can hear it. <laughs> you start putting your keys in the front door really loud like you can't quite get it open. Right. Because <laughs> you know it's going to pick up on the microphone. <laughs> so anyway, well, I'm happy to have you back. I, I missed Thank having you. you on the show. I love talking to you on the podcast. Thank you. I mean, I love talking to you anyway. But I'm I'm privileged in that I get to talk to you every day. The listeners, on the other hand, they don't get to to, to listen to you every day. So, so which I'm, is probably a good thing for them. I can vouch for that. Yeah, 
Like, I, like, like, don't forget that you're special, that you enjoy listening to me every day. Right. I don't think everybody would, that, but thank you. That might be true. That <laughs> might be true. Well, today's going to be a fun episode. This, uh, this particular episode, uh, Chanel and I, we're going to spend the entire episode talking about um, our very favorite recording artist, Ani DeFranco. And I say our favorite recording artist specifically because Chanel may or may not have recording artists that she likes more than Ani um I you know I probably don't she's she's probably the top of my list yeah she's in my top but I I figure like is in terms of you know if if you put our brains together and you're looking for a common denominator between the two of us she's that she would you know she's the one that we that we like the most yeah absolutely so uh so we're gonna spend the entire show talking about ani ani defranco not not only because we love ani defranco and i suspect some of you listening you already know who ani is and if that's the case you might very well be a fan and you might very very well be excited to hear what chanel and i have to say about her if you're if you've never heard of ani defranco uh don't don't worry I think you're still going to enjoy this episode because not only are we going to talk about Ani DeFranco as a as a recording artist and as a as a sort of a social activist as a, something of a, a feminist icon, but uh, for me, Ani DeFranco holds a particularly important role in my writing and my publishing career. Uh, we'll, we'll get those details later, but suffice to say, or suffice it. To say, I forgot the it. <laughs> Suffice it to say. Suffice that shit. Uh, my my writing and publishing, specifically my publishing career, uh, might very well be non-existent were it not for Ani DeFranco. So if you're a fan of Inside the Outside, if you if you got yourself a copy of it and you read it and you enjoyed it and you were happy for the experience, then you should know that. Uh, a very, very, very big reason why why you ended up reading that story is because of Ani DeFranco. And you're going to find out why during the course of this episode. Yeah, and in turn, it's also because of me. Oh, uh, yeah, And you... we'll get there. <laughs> but you're also welcome. Oh, I should have known you weren't going to let that go. We'll, no. We'll talk no. about it. We're, I Notice I didn't bring that up. I was going to see if you let that part go, but <laughs> you clearly weren't going to let that go. No way. So I so I guess well okay so so Chanel and I we both love Ani DeFranco. Here's a here's a little bit about her. Uh, again, you know, if uh, if you, if you don't know who she is or what she does, she's a let's see here. Ani DeFranco is a, she's a singer, a songwriter, a poet, and a political activist who once upon a time walked away from a record deal offered to her by a major record label. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, and you could probably help me out with this. I'm fairly certain it was multiple labels to try to sign her. I'm, I think so, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And uh, instead of signing with a major label, uh, Ani DeFranco chose instead to find her own way as an independent artist. Along the way, she created Righteous Babe Records, which allowed her to forge her way outside of the mainstream, succeeding primarily because of a loyal army of fans built largely on word of mouth. And, and, and of course, that's exactly how I found out about Ani DeFranco mm-hmm. because of Chanel's word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And Chanel found out about Ani DeFranco because of somebody else's word of mouth. Yeah. One, one of the ironies about Ani DeFranco, I, I don't know if this is ironic, but whatever. I said <laughs> it, so now it's... Now it's there. It's on the record. 
is that if you've never heard of her, it's 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 for a good reason because mm-hmm. you know she she doesn't record you know for a, a major label. In all likelihood, you've never heard her on the radio. You've almost definitely never seen her on MTV or VH1, <laughs> even when they did play music <laughs> and music yeah. videos. Uh, and so, and so, you know, if you know of Ani DeFranco, it's almost exclusively because somebody else knew her, loved her, and introduced you to her. And yet, even though you know she's not, you know, she doesn't have, say, necessarily like a mainstream recognition. If you go to an Ani DeFranco concert, m- more times than not, not only is it going to be packed and sold out, it's going to be packed and sold out which is an army of the most, you know, excited, loyal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ravenous fans. Did I use the right word there? Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. goodness. I think I was about to... Screaming, sweating, happy, happy fans. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, uh, and, and, and it's the most amazing thing, especially, again, because my first experience, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but we'll get there in a second. But basically, my first concert, I didn't know who Ani DeFranco was. So when I, so when I saw just like a theater filled with people who not only was it filled they were they were just excited as all fucking hell <laughs> and i was like who is this woman that all these people are so excited about but anyway again you know we'll, 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 i'm getting ahead of myself so uh Ani defranco she's been recording uh since uh, 1990 she's released more than 20 albums i know there was a period for almost 10 years where she was releasing like one album a year oh it's the best time of my life <laughs> And then I she, uh, I think she slowed down a little bit. I mean, for her, you know, whereas like every two years mm-hmm. she put out an album. Uh, she's 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 like forty three now. I know she's got a she's got a child. Or she's probably about, what do you think her kid is like five or six years old at this point? Something. You know, she's probably even older by now. So. Yeah. And and so I think since uh, she's you know she's married, she has a kid. Uh, actually, not in that order. She had the kid, and then they married a couple <laughs> years later. Um, She's she's been producing less music, and I'm sure there I'm sure there's a certain correlation. You know, she's spending time with the with her kid, which you know, which makes sense. Uh, and also, she she was a crazy road warrior. I mean, from like 1990 through a couple of years ago, really, she was pretty much touring seemingly year round. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, we'll 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 even talk about that in a little bit. Uh, she released her first studio album the self-titled Ani DeFranco in 1990 and most recently she released a live album which she has a lot of live albums where it's just going to be it's one of her shows uh, they record it and then you know yeah they're like bootlegs but like official bootlegs yes in fact that's exactly what this one's called it's a uh, Richfield Connecticut which is both the title and uh, you know obviously where she recorded the show <laughs> Richfield Connecticut November 18th 2009 official bootleg series number two that one came out in 2014 mm-hmm. so she's she's pretty prolific she's got e- even when she wasn't i guess I, I i don't think i was actually specific i could have been more specific when i said she was uh you know say producing an album every every year and then producing an album every two years uh specifically i meant studio albums because mm-hmm. she was also releasing these live bootlegs around the same time yeah. so i think maybe almost literally there was probably uh, an album every year yeah. whether it was a studio recording or uh, or one of these live um, you know, official and, bootlegs. And you guys might be like, you know, why do you need so many bootlegs? <laughs> but Ani's one of those really unique, really great artists where you can hear her sing the same song 50 times 
And every time it's going to be different yeah. and it's going to be special and there's just going to be a different feeling, a different emotion. And I know that might even sound cheesy, but it's true. Yeah. So, you know, you might be like, well, who needs a bootleg? You already have the album. You have one bootleg. You have them all. But I can't tell you how many, like, versions of each song I could listen to, like, yeah. in a row. <laughs> yeah. And you figure, again, she's got, you know, 20 albums. Yeah. And she's got a lot of songs. Yeah, she's got a lot of songs. And, you know, she's she's not uh, she's not perfect. So it's not like every song on every album is a winner. But, yeah. but you know, she's got uh, a pretty high volume of really great songs yeah. that she could probably put together and has, you know, say two or three unique shows. And she kind of has, like, you know, we've, we've seen her live a lot. And w- one of the things I like about her is that she's, you know, she'll she'll mix it up. But she knows, like, she knows, like, which handful of songs that the fans get excited about. <laughs> right. She so, knows which ones not to, like, fuck with. So even when she, you know, mixes <laughs> things up, she's got, like, she's got some staples in there. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Because, uh, you know, not to get off topic, but uh, I think, was it last summer that we saw Aerosmith or the summer before? Gosh, that was at least two summers ago. Okay. So about two summers ago, uh, we took uh, my mom to go see Aerosmith. Yeah, you and I. It was at the the Hollywood Bowl, yeah. And you and I were excited because it's you know Aerosmith. Yeah, it was Aerosmith with Cheap Trick. And uh, uh, <laughs> Cheap Trick, ironically, um, <laughs> the, like you know, they they really only had the one song that uh, that I knew I was looking forward to. I went, I, I want you to want me. Is that right. the name of the song, or is that just one of the lines? I think that's the name of the song. Yeah. And uh, they, I think they literally that was like, if not the last song they played, like the second to last. <laughs> and so for the whole set, it's like I don't fucking know any of these yeah. songs. Yeah. Uh, and then they finally got there. And I was like, all right. But by the time they got there, I think I was exhausted from all the songs I didn't know. <laughs> and so, but anyway, it's like Aerosmith. So we took my mom and uh, she was, she was excited to go. But, you know, she, I mean, she grew up during a, a different era of music. And so by the time Aerosmith was, you know, relevant, they were completely off of her radar. Like for the last 20, 25 years, mm-hmm. my, my mother had absolutely no idea that Aerosmith <laughs> existed or that they made music at all. She did, on the other hand, know Steven Tyler only because my mom is a huge, huge fan of American Idol. And every year, in the last couple of years, before the season starts, almost like clockwork, she'll say, you know, I think I'm done with American Idol this year. <laughs> I, it's just, yeah, I'm just tired. Yeah, I'm just tired of it. It's kind of, you know, whatever. It's the it's the same thing. And, you know, I'm just tired of whatever. I'm done. And then... She'll watch one episode because it's on, and then she falls in love with some of the singers, and then, you know, and then she watches the whole thing, and then I get to hear about it on the <laughs> phone. It's adorable. So for one season, Steven Tyler was one of the judges on American Idol. She'd never heard of him, but she just fell, like, head over heels in love with Steven Tyler. <laughs> and, like, uh, and it, was, it was adorable because, like, when she would, like, see him on TV or even, like, talk about him, and Chanel could vouch for this. She was, like, she was, you could almost, like, you you could, it's like it's like she was like a like a teenager like talking about her new favorite you yeah. know like rock star is adorable. Yeah, she definitely had like a very genuine love for him. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 the things that she wasn't well has saying, she still oh, loves oh, him. Oh yeah, yeah she's, it's not over. Oh yeah, she loves him, and and frankly, I mean, you know, she's she's still married to my dad, but <laughs> if uh, if, if uh, Steven Tyler walked through the door, I can't guarantee. That uh, that uh, she wouldn't put her marriage at risk. <laughs> she loves him. She I lo- could actually guarantee you that she would. <laughs> I think we would be willing to bet on that. I'd put I'd put money on yeah. it. Yeah, I'd put money on it. I, I, yeah, she might agree with that. <laughs> so anyway, we uh, we took her to the Hollywood Bowl. 
uh, to see Aerosmith. So for Chanel and I, we were excited to see Aerosmith for my mom. You know, she's going to see her boyfriend, Steven Tyler. <laughs> and it was, you know, it's you know, it's Aerosmith, so they're great. But it almost, almost like defiantly, they didn't play any hits. They have. Like two hits, right? They, they play- have so many good songs. Yeah. Like so many good songs. They played maybe about Four I wouldn't even say of it was those that really many. good songs. I'd say it was like two or three. Yeah, it was it was really disappointing. Oh, yeah. and they uh, if you if you've been to the Hollywood Bowl, you know it's really big. Huge. So if you get the cheap seats, which we did, yeah, you know, like you know, you can't see a lot, but they've got these really huge, like crazy, like IMAX size yeah, screens, which is part of the reason you don't mind taking the cheap seats. Exactly, because you're like, I'll be able to see the video, look down. They didn't have the stupid cameras on. Nope. So we couldn't see anything, and they weren't singing any good songs. And, you know, I get it. Like, you're Aerosmith, and you're like, we have new shit, too. But come on. Like, you've got to know fans are not there to listen to your new songs. Yeah, and Steven Tyler, at some point, I don't know if you remember, he actually, like, made a a remark essentially acknowledging that, you know, we probably want to hear old shit, but they're going to play new shit. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. No, I don't. And uh, I blocked out most of that concert. <laughs> and yeah, I still love Aerosmith. And yeah, I, but but I mean, we were both kind of disappointed about yeah. that. They sang "Dream On." That was that awesome. was cool. That they was sang awesome. "Ragdoll," which I've always loved. That uh, "Love in an Elevator." I feel, I feel like I feel like maybe that one. So yeah, maybe like three. Maybe three. Yeah, those, <laughs> the, we could those are the three of. hits. Um, but anyway, that we, that long winded uh, digression was all in the vein of saying Ani DeFranco does not do that. That, you know, she'll, you know, she mixes things up, but she also has a really uh, clear idea of what her fans enjoy, what they look forward to. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she's, she never disappoints. We've never been, we've, we've never been disappointed with a, with a live performance. Yeah. And she's also, I think like, again, I'm going to use the cliche of being a unique artist, but I think she is one of those unique artists who like, she could sing anything and make it good. Yeah. Like, she could sing Rockabye Baby, and you'd be like, whoa, <laughs> because she's so passionate, and she's so fired up. That's the perfect word, is passion. Yeah. I mean, because she's, you know, I, I know, I can't... It's I, intense. Like, yeah. it's intense to watch her and listen to her. Yeah. And, like, I don't know anything about singing, and so far as, like, I don't have an ear for, does she have, like, a great singing voice? But she sounds good. Like, she, you know, she has the ability to sing well, yeah. But beyond whatever ability she has to sing well, there's a really raw, and you know, magnetic passion that's mm-hmm. just you know, that uh, that even even if she wasn't singing, you know, with any sort of like melody or rhythm, it would still be very engaging and magnetic and and entertaining to to listen to. I suspect. Um, all right. So again, I I, I was probably going to skip over this because I didn't I didn't know, but but Chanel right away at the very beginning of the show threw me under the bus so we'll go ahead and talk about it um chanel not only did chanel love ani defranco before i did uh she she tried early on to to do me the service of introducing me to ani defranco and i remember very specifically we were uh, we were at your parents house we've been dating a few years so you know so uh, we each still lived at home and so I was visiting uh, you at your at your parents' house. We were hanging out in your bedroom, and I don't know if you had recently learned about her. I'm sure you recently learned about her. You mm-hmm. you got a couple of her CDs, and so you you were you went. I don't I don't know if you played me a specific song or you just like put it on. 
And I was just like, what? What is this bullshit? This is terrible. What am I? What am I listening to? Who is this? And the thing is, like, I really thought because Martin's a writer, and I always thought that was really cool. And Ani DeFranco is this amazing, like, prolific writer. And I just was like, oh my god, he's a writer. <laughs> She's so good. He's gonna get it. He's gonna. I am gonna rock his world by like sharing this woman that I am just so passionate about. You know, I'm gonna share it with him, and he's just gonna fall over and thank me uh, and, I, and i was like what the fuck is this do you even know me <laughs> it's been a couple of years i think at this point yeah. why did you think i would like this and uh, and that was it i don't think you ever you know uh pushed her on me yeah, again not with that reaction <laughs> and um and then that was kind of it and then um not long after i, I don't remember you know the timeline wise this part's blurry but i know at some point in the not too distant future from that particular incident uh <laughs> Ani DeFranco, because <laughs> in my mind it was the it, incident. it was a fucking incident right <laughs> there was a there was yellow uh you know a crime tape around the bedroom <laughs> there was a there was a chalk outline where i was when i first heard it uh, Ani DeFranco, yeah, we mentioned earlier she tours like a, she's just a fucking road warrior. She's yeah. been all around the world like a thousand times. And so she was passing through uh, Southern California, and so she's going to be doing a show. And I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember specifically, but I can imagine when you approached me about the idea of going to the Ani DeFranco concert, you probably did so. I don't know. I, I'm sure you kind of tiptoed around it. I'm sure you didn't. You didn't like. I'm sure I like probably like guilted you into it because something you should know about Chanel and her, especially in her early twenties, uh, she was obsessed with concerts. She oh, yeah. being me, in case. In fact, <laughs> not even to cut you off, I remember when we first started dating. One of the very first things you showed me, or one of the first things I remember you showing me, is a scrapbook. Of all the tickets of all the concerts oh, you'd been to, my scrapbook, and it was it was it was both impressive, oh and God. I was jealous. I was like, "Fuck, I, I wish I, I why don't I save stuff?" That's I should have cool. kept saving my tickets. It yeah. kills me that I didn't. It was impressive, but it anyway, was, but go ahead. But I stopped eventually because I didn't want to be a hoarder. Um, you were talking about how when you were a kid or you know, oh young right, adult teenager. Yes, so when I was young and like I loved concerts, I was always on the perpetual hunt for you know people to go to concerts with. Um, because, you know, I had friends that liked to go to concerts, but they didn't necessarily like the same music or they didn't have the money or they couldn't drive or just whatever it was. So I'm pretty sure I probably guilted you into it by saying, I love Ani. I love her so much. Please go with me. Please. I'll buy your ticket. <laughs> and I, th- I think because I know we've done this before and, and this might have been the, the beginning of the uh, this particular precedent. But I feel like maybe there was like the like an arrangement of like, well, see if you can find somebody else to go with you. Obviously, you know, if you really want to go, I, 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 I want you to go to the show. I don't want to go because you played me that bullshit a few weeks ago or months ago or whenever it was. But if you can't find anybody else to go, then I'll go with you. And you probably gave it a few days or a few weeks. And I'm sure I was probably like, score, I have someone to go with. Yeah, I'm sure you just wanted to give me the impression that you were looking around <laughs> to find a, a concert buddy. Uh, but I don't think you were. Huh. No. <laughs> no, I wasn't. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say it. So, so, yeah, so then you were like, so, yeah, so then I agreed to go. And I wasn't excited at all. But 
um, you know, I, I wanted I I wanted to be I wanted to be the good boyfriend, and I wanted to be uh, nice and supportive. So I I agreed to go to this this show, and it was a uh, it was at the Grove of Anaheim, which is in Anaheim, California. It's actually just a few minutes from Disneyland. If you've ever if you've ever been to Disneyland, but you've not been in the Grove, then at least you know you weren't that far from it. Uh, this particular concert was uh, it was on March second, two thousand and two. It was a it was a Saturday evening, and I mentioned evening specifically not 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 just because uh, concerts traditionally happen in the evening, but Chanel and I don't know her rationale, so maybe you, I'll let you explain in just a second. Chanel was insistent that we get to the show early. And I mean early. <laughs> like not like, you know, they open the doors at six thirty, so I'd like to get there at six. Like she wanted to be there at like like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and I'm not even exaggerating. And and, and you and that was this was a very important point to you, but but what was the uh, rationale? Well, you know, in my young days of concerts, like one, I didn't want to miss anything. That included any opening acts, because you never know. I might have discovered the next Ani DeFranco or my next favorite band. So that was part of it. The other part was this particular concert was general admission. Hmm. And I wanted to be really close, because I was like, oh, my God. Because, you know, now I will stand in the back. I don't care if you tell me I can be in the front row general admission. I will be like, no, it's cool. I'll stand here against the railing. (laughs) (laughs) Back then, though, it was like, obviously, that's just the best place to be is in the front. So, yeah, I just really wanted to be in the front. And so my thinking was, well, if we get there really early, it's general admission, we'll be, like, the first in line. So if we're the first in line, we're the first to get in there. And I'm going to be right up against the stage. Ani's going to sweat on me. It's going to be glorious. <laughs> oh, we were there so fucking early. We like, were there so early. Yeah. And, and you know, like, some sometimes I, I'll be a little bit silly on the show, and I, I might even exaggerate to, to try to be funny i am not exaggerating we were we were at the show like He's four not. or five hours early yeah and here's the crazy thing <laughs> we weren't the first ones there yeah we weren't even close to we being weren't the first even ones close there. There we were was, at the back of the line there was a crowd of we fans were like on the other side of the building <laughs> <laughs> we were like you know when the, it was like it was like uh, like on black friday when you yeah when you walk by best buy and there's yeah. already like a line of people there were already people there, yeah. Um, so we, yeah, so so we got in line, and and you know, and I'm, I'm just yeah. And this was this is long before you know smartphones or anything. Yeah, there was nothing. You, there we was, didn't even have texting. No, there there was <laughs> nothing you could do to entertain yourselves, uh, except talk to each other. And you know, what, what the fuck are we going to talk about? Uh, you know, we're at we're at a concert four hours early. Yeah. We already drove like an hour to get there, <laughs> so we already talked out everything. Yeah, so it's just it's just hanging out, and uh, and so you know. But but by the same token, uh, you know this for for me, this was the my the really probably like the first indication for me at just how rabid you know uh, Ani DeFranco's fans are that you know they were there early they were excited nobody yeah. looked bummed out to be there early every it was like the party was wow. already starting yeah it was like a it was like a picnic people had cards people had games people were talking to people in line. Saving places, going yeah. across the street. I think there was a Panda Expe- Express across <laughs> the street. Um, so yeah, it was like this. It was this cool, like communal thing. And that's the other thing I'm going to throw out too. Like Ani DeFranco fans are cool. Oh yeah. Like it's a really great 
kind of loving vibe where, you know, some concerts you go to, you get dirty looks and it's like, oh, who does this person think they are? Or just whatever. Oh, don't take cuts. But like Ani fans, like they'll just chat you up, ask you how many times you've seen her, if you've ever met her. You know, it's really, really nice people. Yeah. And you'll, you'll rarely meet a fan at a concert. Who hadn't seen her live like 10 times before. Yeah. Yeah. You never meet somebody who's like, it's my first time. Yeah. And like, if you do happen to meet somebody who it's their first time, it's like, you're really excited for them. Yeah. It's like you're there when they're getting their cherry popped. <laughs> Just like holding their hand, like it's going to be okay. <laughs> oh God, you're silly. But you know what Martin did? <laughs> is uh so we're there we're early we get in they finally open the doors and i'm so excited i'm beelining for the front and there's already like a pretty good crowd up front and i'm like it's okay we're gonna we're gonna weasel in we'll be like four rows standing back and martin like stops me and he's like why don't we go right here yeah. and basically it's like the second tier up like it's back a little further by this railing and I'm like, no, like we got here like four fucking hours early. Like we're going to be in the front. Are you joking? And he like really put his foot down. Yeah. Like he would not go down with me. And he was basically like, well, you can if you want, but I'm going to be right here. <laughs> yeah. Because again, because like up to this point, I think I had been very amenable. Like I didn't want to go to the show, <laughs> but I, 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 I went. Uh, I didn't want to get there, you know, four or five hours early, but I relented and we got there early. <laughs> I don't even think I realized there was going to be no seats. Like, that's just a fucking... Pe- I, hate, I, I fucking hate going to any any, any any performance of anything without seats. I don't care who it is. Yeah. I, I don't care if, you know, Steven Tyler offered to perform in my living room. If I couldn't sit down, I would say, no, thank you, sir. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, so so there's no seats. But, but, you know, all along the way, I was just, again, just kind of bending and relenting and you know when i wanted her to enjoy this experience but you know i think because i didn't have the uh the you know ani defranco colored glasses <laughs> you know i i could see what chanel couldn't see and i was like it was it's you know just just a pack of people on a floor not we weren't going to be up against the stage because i mean one of the things that you, that you should also know if you've never been to an ani show the second they open the doors i don't think it's i don't think i'm exaggerating people start running yeah, people were running. They start running. And because... even the people who were already at the front, like, there was already, like, music didn't even start. There was no opener yet. Yeah. People were already kind of, like, shoving. Yeah. Like, it, and again, I know, you know, they're all very polite, but there's still, like, that push of, like, it's okay. And, like, nobody was mad, but it was just, yeah. you know. And so, you know, there was definitely, you know, I mean, there was room on the floor, and we wouldn't have been far from the stage, but we wouldn't have been. We would we would have been say maybe ten or feet, five ten feet back. Not in in my mind, it wasn't close enough to to justify. Yeah, and actually, on the floor. actually, the spot that that Martin insisted upon was ideal. And every time I've gone to the Grove after, <laughs> I go for that second tier right by the railing. Yeah. Because here's the thing: after a concert and there's an opening act, and as much as you love any artist, you get tired of standing there. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're right by that rail, you fucking lean on that shit. Yeah, man. And you're okay, and you have a spot. You don't have to sway with the crowd or get pushed. So anyway, so yeah. it ended up being okay. Yeah, I saw the rail. He taught me something new about <laughs> concerts, and now yeah. I always beeline yeah. for the rail. And see, and that was the only thing. That was the only thing I put my foot down about is like, I we've got a fucking rail. I can see the stage right there. This is fine. And I don't, I don't know if we mentioned this part, um, but uh, Chanel, you were so fucking mad at me. 
Oh my God, you were like, I was so mad. Like to me, like you had crushed this really exciting <laughs> event. Like honestly, I was so excited. It was this great thing. I was going to a concert with my boyfriend. I loved Ani and I just knew you would love her after you saw her. And then you were like shitting on it. And like he wouldn't budge people. Like he would not budge. It wasn't like I couldn't like bat my eyelashes and be like, please. He was not going to go down. And like, you know, I wasn't going to go down there by myself. Right. I was shy, especially at the time. Now I'd probably like I can go to a concert by myself now and be okay. I've actually done it like once. <laughs> but back then there was no way. Yeah. Like that's that's also part of the reason I like always needed someone to go with and how he ended up going with me in the first place there's no way i was gonna like drive and go be in a crowd all by myself um so i don't know you know what what did you think martin of the show well okay so i remember my my uh my initial impression of the show was that i was like it, it wasn't bad when it started but um but i wasn't overwhelmed with joy and and I, and I I had my hopes up I think partly because uh, you know the people there it was packed mm-hmm. they were fucking excited the second you know the like the lights dropped and the first mm-hmm. you know strums of a guitar came from you know from the, the back or whatever people were like losing their shit <laughs> and I was like you know what okay I'm getting kind of excited because this, this has got to be great because everyone's so fucking excited I think this is going to be great and you know, and, and the show starts. And one thing I remember is, Ani came out, but she had like a background singer who also maybe played like a bongo or something. They came out together from opposite ends of the stage, and everybody's <laughs> cheering. And I'm like, which one is fucking Ani? I have <laughs> no right. idea who you Ani DeFranco was. And so I assumed for like the first five minutes of the show, it, I remember she looked like Katie Lang, her backup singer. I thought that was Ani DeFranco. I was like, <laughs> all right, well that's cool, and because they were because they were kind of singing together. And then at some point, you know, um, the real Ani stepped forward, maybe <laughs> picked up her guitar. I was like, oh, no shit. That was her. Okay. <laughs> it's the little one. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so she, uh, you know, she she played a couple of songs and none of them were bad. But, you know, none of them, none of them grabbed me. None of them hooked my imagination. None, nothing was overwhelmed. So I was like, all right, well. And just for the record, it was an amazing show from start <laughs> to finish. So... It was really good. I'm sure it was. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And so I remember, even there was a couple of songs too where I remember, um, what's the, I'll bet you can name the song because now I'm drawing a blank, but it's the one where there's a lyric about, I was like a, a cigarette and your yellowed fingers and the, oh yeah, something, something, something. Um, oh wow. I just had a brain fart. I, yeah. I have it. I have the song. It's on, uh. Reveling Reckoning, double album. I want to call it Nicotine, but Nicotine's actually a different song. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I guess the name doesn't matter. Again, if you're a fan, you probably know Marrow. What you're Marrow. It's there Marrow. you go. There you go. <laughs> and so I remember like that. Like occasionally That's there would there would be song. you know this really wonderful poetic lyric. I was like, oh, that was that was nice. I dug that. But otherwise, nothing, nothing was hooking me. And so about halfway through the show. Um, you know, Ani was, uh, she, that particular show, she had a pretty big band. As we would find out in the coming years, she doesn't usually play with bands. It's mm-hmm. either just her and a guitar, maybe her and a guitar and a stand-up bass player, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a drummer sometimes, but she keeps it pretty sparse. 
Um, but this particular show, she had a relatively big band. So about halfway through the show, uh, the band, maybe they went off, took a break, get some water, you know, wipe the sweat off their brow. And it was just uh, Ani by herself, you know, in front of the microphone. And uh, she might have taken her guitar off because uh, she... You know, she, uh, she's an amazing guitar player, and she literally switches guitars every song. Yeah. Which I, you know, I'm sure it's by design, and I would love to know, you know, what each guitar has to do with each song, but I'm not a musician, so I probably couldn't appreciate it anyway. <laughs> so then um, she started, you know, talking to us. Like, she made, she didn't necessarily transition into what she was going to talk about. She just started talking. So she's talking, and I'm listening. And about... A minute or so into her talking to us, I I worked out that she wasn't talking to us. She was actually performing, and then it became clear to me that she was a, she was reciting a poem. And again, she didn't say, you know, uh, here's this poem I'm working on. I'm gonna recite it for you now. She just got into it, and uh, and I actually like I, I actually liked that. There was some sort of certain I don't know like mysterious mm-hmm. transition. It was this very sort of natural thing. Because cause it sounded like she was talking. It was sort of a spoken word poem. Mm-hmm. But it became very clear very quickly that this was sort of a, a crafted thing she was she was working on. And now that I say that, I have a memory of her telling us about it. But I almost want to say maybe she mentioned it afterwards. Because I, I kind of remember... I think she did. Yeah. I remember it being afterwards, okay. too, actually. Because I remember, too, being like... Because she does. She has, a, she has a great stage banter. She's actually yeah. one of the best, like performers that way too yeah that's part um, of what's so much fun seeing her live. yeah so i think it was part of like like oh she's gonna she's like talking to us she is she'll talk to, she just talks to the crowd like she knows you and you're all just like chilling and hanging out she's just great because awesome. you can't tell <laughs> and so at the time this was such a new poem it didn't have a title eventually the poem uh became called became called is that correct english <laughs> It was eventually titled. It was titled. (laughs) Eventually it was titled Became Called. That's fucking funny. (laughs) She eventually titled the poem Self-Evident. But before she called it Self-Evident, she didn't have a title for it. It did done get called. (laughs) Sorry. That's all right. Let me get my composure. Uh, I guess this time I'm the idiot. (laughs) So anyway, uh, but not only was it uh, this sort of really brilliant, powerful poem, but specifically it was it was a poem about the uh, the tragedy of the the terrorist attacks on September 11th. Mm-hmm. Now there's there's a few things that really stood out about this, uh, and again, you know, we're we're in what July August of uh, July 2014. Yeah, so yeah, so it's July. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost August. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so uh, adrift in uh, memory lane that I forgot <laughs> what month it actually. July was. August is actually a new month that we've created. <laughs> July August. August. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it, you know, for those of you who are old enough to remember, you know, you know, we don't have to explain to you how, just how you know, scary and tragic and, and emotionally uh, impactful it was to. To, to be uh, alive uh, specifically to be you know uh, to be an American citizen you know during the during that time in September 11th it was a very scary you know uh, emotional yeah. uh, time and so and, and and one of the things about that about that time uh, about the the months the days the weeks the months following September 11th 
is there was this really tangible uh, unity amongst mm-hmm. the country. You know, there was no like political divides were evaporated and race and gender and and religion. It just felt like everything was evaporated, unless you were Muslim. In that case, everybody <laughs> was yeah, fucking. Yeah, it was terrifying. They, you know, the, the, the he was turned up on you if you were Muslim, but everybody else, it was sort of just you know, <laughs> yeah. there was no there was no divisions, no lines, and it was like because you know. It's 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 sort of it's not unusual. It's not unlike you know it, when uh, when there's a tragedy in your family, when you know when when somebody in the family dies, it brings everybody together. In this case, it was you know this tragedy in uh, for for the nation, and everybody kind of came together. And and at the time, you know George W. Bush was the president, and you know nowadays, it, I I wonder how many how many people like really remember it because you know mm-hmm. Obama's and he's in his second term as president. You know, it's it's been several years since George Bush was president, but you know it. Uh, like I would say, like definitely during his last term, but for a, a great chunk of George Bush's you know uh, run as president, mm-hmm. he became something of a, a an easy target. You know, you know he was you know uh, overall you know uh, unpopular. He was made fun of by you know comedians, and he was you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, just not taken very seriously, and to a large degree, a lot of people just you know hated George Bush, and he just became just like the easiest you know target in the world. But at this time, following September 11th, he was literally by the numbers, by the poll numbers, one of the most popular presidents in the history of the country. Mm-hmm. He had like an 80 percent approval approval rating, mm-hmm. and that was in large part because, you know, on the one hand, I think most any president would have you know would have been popular just because you know they're like they're the leader it was I like I I remember because I I it was such a scary time because you know I we didn't were, were we going to war was there going to be more attacks is, is it going to get worse from here and so it was the first time especially as, a, as an adult for me like looking at the president it's like fuck all right what are we going to do like you're the leader like like any other time it's just you know the the president it's like they're like this vague figure who's in the white house somewhere yeah. making decisions we don't know about yeah there's this huge tragedy this thing happened that we don't understand yeah. and in any time like that you look for a leader yeah and so we were looking know? and george bush you know and uh, he was by title <laughs> our leader he was our leader and and you know for uh, especially in the days following 9-11 you know w- whatever decisions he was making just in terms of being a face that was on everybody's tv talking to us he did a great job, I think, you know, sort of being uh, sort of comforting, but yeah. also, you know, clearly, you know, doing whatever his presidential thing was. And and, and it was uh, and it was effective. So he was extremely popular in, you know, in later years. As we said, he became like this easy punchline, became unpopular. A lot of people didn't like him. But for that period of time, you know, especially if you if you weren't around during that time, it might be, even be hard to, to, to believe he was extremely popular. Now, uh, we took a couple extra uh, moments to make that point because it's important to Ani DeFranco's poem. So her poem was, was about uh, the, the tragedy of September 11th. And Ani, incidentally, she's from New York. She's from Buffalo, New York. Um, and so so in the poem, part, part of the purpose of the poem is she's sort of, um, I guess you might say she's sort of like meditating on the the, the fear and the emotional, you know, pain of, of the tragedy, you know, of this thing happening. But then another big part of the poem is she's 
unapologetically critical of both America and American politics and America as sort of a, uh, a consumer nation. But she was also particularly critical of George W. Bush. Now, again, if you heard this same poem in 2008, right around the time Barack Obama was, you know, getting elected to, to become president, and, you know, there was just a huge, huge portion of the country that was thrilled to see George Bush leave, you might say to yourself, well, yeah, obviously, you know, of course she wrote that poem. But what I was really struck by is she was doing this poem only months after September 11th. Again, we saw this show in the in the early winter, spring of 2002. Mm-hmm. September 11th was was very, very, very nearby in our yeah. very recent past. George Bush was still, you know, at that point, very popular. So to hear, so to hear her recite this poem and within this poem speak critically about George Bush, it was fucking jarring. Mm-hmm. And not only was it jarring, I was like, I think I remember thinking, like, can she say that? Yeah. And I kind of remember being like, oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, like, being like, shit, she's right. You know, it was just just really great. It's worth looking up. Um, It's probably a little too long for us to read here. I I think it is. What I actually, what I did uh, on my on my uh, website, martinlestraps.com, I have an article that I wrote about, you know, Anya DeFranco and why I loved her or love her so much. And I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll put that on the podcast website. I'll put a yeah, link to the cool. to the article. And within the article, I have a there's a YouTube video of her doing the poem. It's really amazing. Mm. And so so that for me that was the turning point. It was the turning point for a couple of reasons. Uh, as Chanel said, you know, as a writer, she expected me to to connect with Ani. And so in this case, it was this this epic poem. It was like like ten minutes the way mm-hmm. she performed it. And, but because there was no music and she wasn't singing and it was stripped down just to the words, the part of me that's a writer that can appreciate that, um, I was in love with the poem. Mm-hmm. Even during the parts of the poem where I was, you know, there was parts of the poem that, you know, I was like, I don't, you know, can she say that? I don't, is this offend? <laughs> I feel, I think I'm offended by this part or that part or mm-hmm. I don't know if I, I don't know yeah. if I agree with her on this or that. Well, because like our country was just attacked yeah. so brutally and not only is she criticizing George Bush, but she criticizes America. Yeah. Very brutally, like yeah. our history. Yeah. About, you know, the consumerism and how much we take and what we've done to other countries. Yeah. And basically kind of saying, like, what did we expect? Yeah. Like, did we think we weren't ever going to get payback? So it's very, like, we're all still really raw and emotional about mm-hmm. this thing. And it's like somebody saying, well, like, yeah, look what we've done. And it's like, no, we're fucking America. We haven't <laughs> done anything wrong. We don't deserve anything. Yeah. So it was very, but it was also written in a way of like, like it is terrible. Yeah. But maybe we should all think twice about what we've done and what we're going to do in the future instead yeah. of just taking pillaging and then saying, oh, yeah. somebody's pissed off. Yeah. I mean, cause she, I mean, cause she's brilliant enough that the balance was for me, it, it's, it's spot on in that. You know, she she doesn't uh, she doesn't you know you know she she doesn't minimize the tragedy. In fact, a big part of the poem is about you know how heartbreaking and tragic the whole thing was. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, but, but she on, also doesn't like romanticize it. Yeah, as like oh poor us, 
It's just, it's really good. Yeah, so it's a beautiful poem. It's really powerful. And for me, that was the turning point. And it, and it was a turning point. On the one hand, it was a turning point because it was so beautifully and powerfully written that even if you don't hear her perform it, if you just read it, it's still a very powerful, you know, poem to read. Yeah. And I, and by the way, when, when I, you know, the great majority of people, I think, in, in, in the world, it feels like, don't like poetry. And the second you hear the word poetry, you're like, ah, fuck it. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't give a <laughs> shit. And, and I say that without, you know, with, with, with apologies and all due respect to my poet friends, because I have a lot of friends who are, you know, who are wonderful poets. Um, but, you know, I, they would probably say the same thing that, you know, most people, you know, don't really enjoy poetry. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm a writer and I love writing, I'm also really not a big fan of poetry, at least not. You know, I mean, there's there's poets or poems that I've heard that I've enjoyed, but I would never call myself a lover or an appreciator of poetry. Mm-hmm. So when I say that she read a poem and I loved it, know that, that, you know, it's coming from somebody who doesn't really have an ear for it or somebody who doesn't really enjoy it that much. Mm-hmm. Really beautifully written. So right away, that was amazing. But then I think as much as that, if not more than that, was for me what i perceived as just this amazing bravery because she could have written this poem she could have easily written this poem and said you know what this is what i i I feel all the stuff in this poem but i mean what am i gonna do what am i gonna perform this in front of you know thousands of people at a time all across the country just months after this attack i can't do that but she did it she did it anyway no knowing full well i mean on the one hand you know she's performing it to her audience and so that that's a safe environment i guess but it, it's not like the poem wasn't going to go on the internet it's not like people weren't going to find out about it mm-hmm. it's you know and, and and so knowing that she did it anyway and uh and so it was very much you know what i saw was you know this this amazing uh you know just sort of i don't know strength in her her convictions that that you know i i wrote this i believed this this is how i i feel i feel strongly about this and i want to share it with you guys regardless of the timeline regardless of how close we are to the incident regardless of how the country might feel about the president here's the stuff that i'm feeling and and she and for me it was the first it was the first time that i'd hear that i'd even heard a lot of these points of view like i'd I'd never i'd never before been introduced to the point of view of you know uh america sometimes more times than we would like to admit does shitty stuff around the world mm-hmm. that we're not aware of. Yeah, like uh, we're the bully. Yeah, uh, it was. The we don't think of ourselves that way. No, of course but in not. In a lot of cases, we've been the bully. Yeah, or, or at the very least, you know, the the government that represents us does things in our name that you know we're not aware that's mm-hmm. happening. You know, um, it was the first time that I really you know th- there's a there's a there's a line in the in the poem that uh, always struck a ner- struck a chord with me. Where, you know, she says, you know, the, the, the media is not fooling me. Mm. And, it, and and that was the first time that I'd even been presented with that point of view. I was like, fuck, the, the me- why? Because the implication is the media plays a role in fooling people. And if you don't know what you're looking at, then, you know, because, yeah, because, you know, you, you watch the news, you watch what's happening on the TV, you read the newspaper, you check out magazines and you trust that all the information you're getting is, is what you're supposed to get. And so to have this woman who... Of course who, it is. It's the news. <laughs> They're just telling us what's happening, Martin. <laughs> well, 
Right? That's what that's what I thought, right? Well, we're I, I think we're I think as a country as a world we're all much smarter now. But at this time, you know, that's true. At, at the time, I don't think people were as we savvy weren't questioning to it, as know. much. So to have this really bright, savvy you know woman reciting this poem with these really sharp, amazing points of view. Now I'm so so that's what I was a fan. I was like, she's she's really smart. She's really bright. She's really brave. She's really talented. And, and, you know, for me, I, I think even before the poem was done, I just remember thinking, you know, I'm a fan. Like, whatever, whatever she does, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan for the whole, the whole rest of my life. This is just fucking amazing. And then I think, I think I even, I might have even just enjoyed the rest of the show from that point forward because it's like I needed that, whatever, you know. <laughs> it opened up your appreciation for the other good stuff. That was ultimately the gateway. And uh, and I was completely in. So then, you know, um, following that show, I uh, you had if you didn't have all of her CDs, you had most of them. I almost yeah. want to say you had all of them. I, I think know. I had almost all. I think like I was maybe missing the very first two or yeah. something, and I got them later. But but yeah, I, I had all the good stuff. Cause I, cause I cause I borrowed all of them. And I, I don't know if I took I don't know if I took them all at once or if I just you took like did. handfuls. You did. It was a big stack, and I was like kind of worried. I think <laughs> I think I didn't let you have the newest one, which I think at the time was Reveling Reckoning. Mm-hmm. I don't think I let you have that till later because I couldn't just be without Ani. <laughs> and uh, and and again, you know, as we as we mentioned earlier, she was you know she has a lot of fucking records because you know she was recording like an album every. Uh, well, every year basically. Yeah. And so, I, but and I so I listened to all so, so her, her her all the records she had up to that point, I listened to I listened to all of them in about three days, and and while I was listening to to all of her records, I was also on the internet just like scouring just any information <laughs> I could find about Ani DeFranco. I was I was looking up lyrics to her songs because because after listening to Self Evident, I also. I, I more, for the most part worked out what you know her fans already know is that all of her songs are essentially these really beautiful poems and it's just sometimes she sets them to to music and gives them a melody and a hook and sometimes they're just they're just poems I was so proud you guys <laughs> and so and so I was reading the lyric even songs that I heard at the concert with the music stripped away just reading them it was it they're they're just it was brilliant i i loved all of it i couldn't i couldn't get enough of it and i was just you know uh obsessed with it and then uh and so i was in i was completely in uh, you know up, up to that point and um and in fact you know one of the things that uh, i discovered at this point and you you might have actually introduced this idea to me but if you did i don't think it stuck necessarily <laughs> but but you know i was basically introduced to to ani defranco as as a as a maverick this is when i started to learn her story as you know she started when she was you know 16 17 years old playing at coffee houses and and bars and and you know uh producing her own records and selling them herself and uh and not only that but you know also learning about how she'd been offered record deals at least you know at least one major record deal and i'm sure it it was more than that Mm -hmm. And she ultimately turned it down because you know it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't what she wanted to do with her career, and that's you know like like today in, in 2014 the the record industry that the you know the, re- the the recording industry 
the music industry what am i trying to call it <laughs> i guess it's the recording industry yeah. is probably specifically what you mean it, you know like today it's a completely different world between you know the internet and itunes and uh pandora and uh what's well that? and you don't really have like They're, scouts looking for the next new yeah. thing in music they're looking for the next Justin Bieber and the next like, yeah. Britney Spears like slash Katy Perry slash yeah. yeah so it's like and not that those people aren't talented yeah, it's just it's, it's a different world that they're all very you know yeah like homogenous it, yeah there, there's there, it's more personality than than, than I was gonna say homogenic but I'm pretty sure that's a Bjork album <laughs> and I was like I don't think that's the right word I think I mean homogenous <laughs> but uh, but you know especially up until I think like. I mean, like Napster basically, uh, you know, uh, broke the the recording industry, and uh, you know, never to be the same again in the in the late '90s, early 2000s. But before that, uh, you know, especially when we were growing up in the '80s and '90s, and of course, even before we were born, you know, uh, a record deal was a really big fucking deal. Mm-hmm. If you were a singer, a songwriter, a musician of any sort, you wanted to get a record deal. Like that was going to change your life. <laughs> And so when she was 18 years old, you know, she was offered a record deal. And to to sort of have the the self-awareness and and the wherewithal and just just the just the the personal, I don't know. I don't know if pride's quite the right word, but to be 18 years old and to know that this record deal could change my life. Mm-hmm. But this isn't what I want to do with myself. This is this isn't what I want to do with my career. I'm going to walk away from this. That's a that's a big deal. I can't say that I would do that. As much as I'd like to think that I would have the same strength of character, I don't think I could do that. Yeah. I, I, I would become a fucking you know dancing puppet. Especially <laughs> that young, it's kind of yeah. like, well, I'll be the dancing puppet and then I'll do my own thing. But yeah. she was just like, nope, I don't yeah. want to do that. So you're not going to make me. So in fact, what uh, what I want to do really quickly, and this will this will give uh, Chanel and I a chance to to to, to take a, a quick break is I'm going to play a, a, a news clip. It's like a three-minute news clip that uh, CNN did a few years back. They were profiling Ani DeFranco. And for, you know, I mean, there, there's a video, um, th- you know, there's a video component to it. Obviously, you won't see the video on this podcast because you can't <laughs> see what's happening. <laughs> but, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing it from the 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 article I told you about. So again, if you go to my website that I give you the link to, you can you can watch this video on your own. You can you know you can listen to it and watch it. But for the sake of the podcast, you're only going to hear us play it. So so as you're listening, you're going to hear you'll hear a little bit of music. You'll mostly hear Ani DeFranco talking, but you're also going to hear a second voice briefly. So when you hear that second voice, it's actually it's actually going to be Prince, who you know I. If we have to tell you who who Prince <laughs> is, then uh, then you know there's there's probably no use in you being alive anymore. <laughs> I don't know. That was harsh, but wow. Prince is fucking amazing. Yeah. We won't get too off topic, but we actually had a chance to see Prince perform live a couple of times. Oh yeah, he's so good. Uh, oh my god, he's good. We'll, we'll, and he likes Ani DeFranco. And he like and that's yeah that's that's the and great Prince thing. like he's fucking huge. So yeah, and and we know a lot of you are like who Ani what what's her name and you haven't heard of her. But that's okay, 
because Warrior letting you know that she's amazing. She's amazing, and Prince is letting you know. Prince is putting his stamp of approval yeah. on Ani. So that. So if you weren't already going to check her out, now you can be like, holy shit. All right, so here's the CNN clip for you right now. When I was 18, I was playing around in bars in Buffalo for years, you know. I had a band since I was 16, and I was a little chick on the scene. And um, people started coming to my little shows and bars and asking if I had a tape to sell. I guess I was supposed to uh, shop around for a record deal and then solicit some corporation to help me make a tape. But it occurred to me like it occurs to so many people, well, I can just do that. You know, it's not a very complicated, nor does it have to be a very expensive thing. So um, I made my first album. Some days the line I walk turned out to be straight. Other days the line and deviate. I got no criteria for sex or race. You hear your voice, just want to see your face. Artistic control is a given in my life. You know, I just couldn't conceive of anything other than that. Although she's a brilliant musician, but she's really inspired me with her uh, uh, take on life and music, uh, the music business. She's decided to keep all her wares in-house. songs are really about personal experiences. Tis of the, you know, in the last verse, it's, it starts, they caught the last poor man flying away in a shiny red cape, and they took him down to the station and said, boy, you should have known better than to try to escape. You know, you construct these systems of poverty which enslave people, and then you criminalize their will to escape that and turn off the sun everything they know it's early getting emotional it's real self-evident what she stands for and uh, you either let that inspire you or you let someone who sings about uh, drugs and violence and you know, goes to the top of the charts. I have no more or less responsibility than any other human being, but I have an opportunity. You know, I mean, I have a stage and I have a microphone and I have a, a certain number of unwitting people who are listening at any given time, and so I have a great opportunity to express social concerns. So there was that. So again, if you don't know... If you, if you didn't know who Ani DeFranco was before this episode, uh, I think you know, probably more than Chanel and I, you know, waxing poetic about her, that uh, CNN clip I think goes a long way to kind of help give you an idea of who she is. And also you get to hear Ani in her own voice, which mm-hmm. I think is, you know, it's always useful when you're kind of learning about somebody that you, you know, maybe don't know about. At the uh, beginning of the episode, I told you guys that uh, I wasn't just going to talk about you know, Ani DeFranco in terms of her being this wonderful recording artist that I just, you know, just love and admire. But she also played, you know, unbeknownst to her, she played 
uh, a really, really important role in what would become my publishing career. And uh, it started, I would say, I would say it's somewhere in the area of 2008, 2009. I don't remember, I don't remember the exact year, but uh, I started writing Inside the Outside in 2005, I would say. I started writing Inside the Outside in 2005. And it didn't have a title yet. I wasn't calling it Inside the Outside. <clears throat> uh, in fact, if I remember correctly, for, uh, a, for a really long time, the unofficial uh, working title was The Sacrifice of Timber Marlowe. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you know, before the book came out, it became Inside the Outside. So I'd, I'd been working on this book, and even before working on Inside the Outside, I'd written a previous novel. And I I spent several years trying to get that novel published. If you're not familiar with the publishing process of of traditional publishing, it's something that I plan on talking about in detail. But you know, this won't be the episode for that. But basically, you know, you uh, if you want to get a traditional publishing deal, you you write a book, and then you try to get a literary agent, and then that agent, you know, uh, gets you a book deal. You know, if you're lucky, it's with one of the big five publishers. But if, if it's not with one of the big five, it's, you know, any publisher somewhere, somebody who's you know, willing to publish your story. And so that's what I was trying to do. And I spent several years doing that and just, you know, collecting rejection letters from uh, from agents. And again, talk to any writer. And this it's the same story. There's nothing special about, you know, me getting rejected. Everybody gets rejected over and over again. And so then I decided, well, maybe it's the book. Maybe I need a new story. So I started working on the novel that would become Inside the Outside. And I was really excited about Inside the Outside. I, I could, you know, in so much as you can tell, you know, without showing it to anybody else, I felt really strongly that this was a special book and this was a special story and that I'd, that I'd you know, uh, that, I, that I, I, I'd done something good here. And, um, and so I felt like when the book was done, I, this this one was going to get published a lot easier. And so when it was uh, so when it was done, and I started sending out you know letters, query letters to agents, I started collecting uh, collecting rejections over and over again. And uh, and and you know the rejections they didn't sting as much because I was thinking you know this book is good, so it's really just a matter of time. But then you know months passed, maybe a year or so passed. And nobody seemed to be interested in this in this new book of mine. And so now I was I was getting just horribly discouraged and frustrated because I'd written one book, nobody seemed to want it. I wrote a second book, and nobody seemed to want it. And so uh, it was right around this time I was having lunch with my big brother Greg, and we were at Vitello's, which is uh, an Italian restaurant in Studio City. I California. love Vitello's. It's so fucking good, right? Yeah, and it's got the coolest, like, interior. It's got these red, I almost said red velvet. <laughs> it's got these, like, red leather booths, you know, like you see in the mob movies, and it's really dark and dim, and it's a really cool place. And actually really good food. Really delicious food. And <laughs> more than the cool atmosphere and the delicious food. <laughs> yeah, it might sound familiar to you. Vitello's is uh, infamous, notorious, if you like, for being the spot where uh, the actor Robert Blake allegedly murdered his wife. 
Allegedly. Allegedly, because, you know, <laughs> was he, do you know if he was convicted? I don't. I feel, either. I don't feel like yeah. I remember him going to jail. Because I know he was on Pierce Morgan's show, like, a year or two ago. I don't know what happened. You know, I think, I don't think he was convicted, and I think it was a big thing, because everybody was like, obviously he did it. That's true, because it's sort and of. And they were like, because he's famous, yeah. he got away with it. But who knows? Yeah. And actually, one of my, I think my first visit to Vitello's, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I remember the the waiters, this really (laughs) funny older man, my brother and I were uh, were eating dinner at Vitello's, and uh, the waiter just had this big smile on his face, like he had this wonderful secret that he couldn't (laughs) wait to tell us. And so he said, and I, and I think he, he, you know, he looked at us and he was, and he was, I think it's sort of like a half, not quite a whisper, but you know, not loud enough for anyone else to hear. He said, this is where they sat. <laughs> Meaning this was the table that, you know, Robert Blake and his, uh, his soon to be murdered wife sat on the right. evening before. And, uh, and I think if uh, I was sitting in the seat that his wife was in and my brother Greg was in the seat that Robert Blake was sitting in. Uh. And uh, Greg, for the rest of the night, was making jokes about, you know, I don't know why, but I, I, I feel like I want to murder you. <laughs> oh, uh, not that it's funny. It's not, but <laughs> I know, I know. It's funny. Uh, but that was, uh, but uh, but anyway, that was actually a different night. So there was another day. Greg and I were at Vitello's and we were having lunch, and I was just, you know, I was just, uh, I was just belly aching over just how how frustrating it is to get a novel published and how, you know, it's it's so much work just to even, I mean, just to write the novel and then just to try to get an agent. Just getting an agent is this almost impossible uphill battle. And even if you can get an agent, then, you know, there's no guarantee they're going to get you a book deal. And it's just like all this, it's, it, it was just, I was just overwhelmed with the, just with the frustrating, you know, reality of all of it. And so then Greg said, well, you know, why not? publish it yourself and I I wasn't the least bit interested in publishing this book myself um, for a couple of reasons the main reason was you know I wanted to be a traditional author you know I wanted I wanted an agent and I wanted to get a traditional publishing deal and I wanted to go the route that you know all of the uh, all of the authors I admired you know seemingly as far as I know I wanted to go to the same route that they went down and uh well, because we're taught that that's like that's yeah. the right way. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm making air quotes with the right way, <laughs> much like with Ani DeFranco, right? Like the right way to really be a success in music is you get your record contract. Exactly. Like we talked about, but you know, same thing with writing. You kind of think like, well, if I were really good, somebody would publish me. Exactly, and and even in the even in the writing community, like the the, the author writer community, more so than readers. I, I I honestly don't think readers care nearly as much as writers do. But in the writing community, I think there is that idea of if you're good enough, you'll eventually get a deal, mm-hmm. and if you never get a book deal, it just means you weren't good enough. And in order to be successful, you have to get a deal. Yeah. For Ani DeFranco to be successful, she has to sign to a big record label. Exactly. For you to be successful, you have to be on a big... <laughs> you might have, so Chanel was on a roll just now, <laughs> and then she paused, and we were looking at each other. I don't know if the microphones picked it up, but there was some... I'm pretty sure there's a demon outside of our window. <laughs> 
So, so uh, yeah, we're, we're gonna get our stakes out really quickly. We're, we're gonna get our our, our stakes and our our yeah. our vampire stakes to be yeah. clear. We don't have any meat in the uh, apartment. Yeah, that was really weird. Well, lock the door. Yeah, so sorry about that. But anyway, we're, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that's okay. So basically, what I was saying is, you know, there's there's this sort of really incorrect, you know, um, vibe. I guess I don't know what word I'm looking for, but this incorrect information out in the world that in order to be successful somebody with a lot more money than you and a contract has to tell you that you're going to be successful. Yeah. And if you look at Ani DeFranco, she didn't take that record contract because she wanted the creative control. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, that's one of the smartest things she could have done. Oh, absolutely. Because you can get a record contract, you can sell records. Musicians don't make a lot off of what they're selling. Authors don't make a lot off the books that they're selling. If you can do it yourself, like her putting herself on her own label, Righteous Babe Records, along with other artists, that's brilliant. Because even if she sells only half the amount of records she could on, say, Warner Brothers, Mm -hmm. no offense to Warner Brothers, she's going to make a lot more money because that's going straight back into her, back into her recording. Absolutely. So, so yeah, and and that's actually you know. That, but but I'm gonna forgive Young Martin because he's not gonna realize that <laughs> yeah. if he publishes himself, he yeah. can do whatever he wants. Yeah, he doesn't is, have to have an editor. He doesn't have to have somebody design his book cover with some cheesy cover he doesn't want. Yeah, yeah. The the younger version of me had no, <laughs> and again because I was uh, also because you know I, I wouldn't. I'm not gonna put the blame on where I went to school because I had nothing to do where you know at Cal State San Bernardino or the English department had nothing to do with them. But I think going through the the program and being amongst amongst you know creative writing students and um, meeting a lot of you know uh, authors, I you know I think you know it, I mean it was a very strong sentiment. In fact, I, I specifically remember um, at least one or two of my writing professors like approaching them with the idea of you know uh, publishing myself versus a traditional publishing deal. And you know, basically, a hundred percent of the time was like, "Oh no, no, don't, don't publish it yourself." I mean, keep just, just keep, keep trucking, keep going forward. You know, you're, you're a good writer; it'll happen. But don't do, you know, and that, and that, that was the feeling, you know. And I totally bought into it. So I was having, so again, having lunch with my brother, and so when he says, "Why don't you just publish it, publish it yourself?" I'm thinking like, "You're out of your fucking mind. You have no idea how fucking stupid you sound right now." And so, and and a big part of it beyond all of that was like, you know, I mean, if I publish it myself, who's going to fucking read it? Who's going to find it? It's just going to be, it's going to be what this book that nobody reads. And that much I remember, I think I told him. And so he essentially said, you know, like, even if, even if your book, even if it reaches a small audience, at least people are reading it. Like right now, nobody's reading it. So even if a small audience is reading it, that's something. And at, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, isn't that the point? Just to have people read your book. I mean, the point's not to to be a, a bestseller and sell a million books and fly around the country. It's to you know, for people to read. And even though that that resonated with me a little bit, I still wasn't completely buying this idea of you know being my own publisher. Uh, and again, you know, as Chanel said, you know, there's especially in the writing community, there's been this long-standing stigma against you know self-published authors and it's it's you know it's i think it's it's slowly but surely going away and it has a lot to do with you know uh the 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 technology uh the the internet ebooks just the whole publishing mechanism being more 
available to authors. And I think it's slowly but surely going away. And as I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, most readers they don't differentiate between a traditionally published book and an independently published book. I I don't know. You you might have noticed that I've I've switched a couple times between self-publishing and independent publishing. There there's probably a slight difference, but for all for the sake of this conversation, they're basically the the same thing. So I'm an independent author, I'm an independent publisher, but that basically means I published my book myself, mm-hmm. so I self-published it. So you can you can start to see how all these terms are. And they, I I think it's important to like as a non-writer myself and to other non-writers listening to point out that self-publishing isn't like I just type this on Word and I'm going to publish it. Right. There's a lot of work that goes into it and it's not something like you can just I mean you can do it. I don't mean that you can't. But it's not something just anybody can just kind of like roll out of bed and be like, oh, I had a cool idea. I'm self-published. Here's my book. (laughs) There's a lot of work. There's really specific formatting. There's really specific editing. You know, a book cover design, just that by itself is like a million steps. Yeah. You've got the cover, you got the back cover, you got the spine, you got the inside cover. <laughs> yeah. You got to figure out how do you, you know, distribution, yeah. how the fuck do you yeah. get this book onto Amazon so and I think it's important, like, because I think the, the stigma behind self-publishing, it has a lot to do with, well, if just anybody could do it, then it must not be good. Right. And I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of, you know, obviously Martin, but, you know, other really talented authors too, who, they did learn how to do these things and learn how to do this formatting or find somebody, you know, paid somebody a good chunk of money to format it for them and design mm-hmm. a book cover. And so, you know, I just I just want to give that little shout out because uh, I know just the, the word self-publishing, it's sort of like a dirty word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point. I'm, I'm actually glad that uh, I'm glad you made that point. So thanks for that. You got it. <laughs> so, um, so again, going back to my lunch with my brother Greg, you know, he brings up, publish it yourself and I'm like you're a fucking asshole that's like the worst idea I ever heard (laughs) and we were talking for a few minutes and then he pulled out the trump card and I don't know how long he was holding on to this and actually Greg because you know Greg is a he's a loyal listener of this podcast so Greg I know you're listening to my voice right now and in all likelihood you probably don't even remember this so (laughs) I might be you know you might be remembering uh, this this conversation for the first time. I um, just remembering wanting to shoot you at Vitello, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so he pulled out his trump card. So I, you know, I, you know, the, the whole time we're having this conversation, I'm saying, no, 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 I would never do that. And he says, "What would Ani DeFranco do?" And I had nothing to say because he knew how much I revered her. He knew how much I loved her and how much I respected her. Not just her music, but just her her integrity as as an artist and that was basically the end of the conversation like not literally I'm sure we kept talking (laughs) but that was you know that basically it like that became checkmate because it's like fuck well I mean if if I'm going to love and revere and respect Ani DeFranco for being this independent spirit this artistic maverick who took her work and did it herself and became this you know self-made successful recording artist I can't, on the other hand, say it would, It doesn't work for me. It's shitty if I do it. Because if it's great for her, and I respect what she did, mm-hmm. then I have to at least be willing to consider doing it. And so, you know, 
and, and even though that was checkmate, and that was like the first significant moment where I was like, well, I guess this really is something I should start to think about. Uh, it still took a little while. You know, I, I wasn't. I, I. It was. It, it was a. It was. It was something of a process mentally, to get myself to the point where I was fully ready to invest. But from that point forward is when I really started thinking about it and really realized maybe that's it. Maybe this isn't a bad idea. Uh, maybe I can just put this out myself and have people read it. And maybe maybe that is good enough. And again, at the end of the day, I mean that's what happened. Is you know it, it was. I mean, the book came out in 2011, so a few years after that conversation passed. Part of that time was me researching uh, independent publishing and you know all the stuff that Chanel was talking about, you know, design and format and covers and distribution and you know all these things. I had to I had to learn these things, you know. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I, uh, I I created Cannibal Press, which is uh, which is my my independent publishing press I guess my publishing company I don't even know what to call it but you know <laughs> whatever <laughs> cannibal press and and you know through cannibal press I published inside the outside and you know and uh, I I don't want to I, I don't know I don't want to sound self-serving or or you know I don't know if it's whatever the, the book has done well <laughs> it's uh you know inside the outside it's you know it's it's been a bestseller and it's and it's won awards and it's got me wonderful recognition uh to the degree that i i really couldn't have expected it and today sitting here talking to you guys i can't imagine doing it any other way but i could never have even gotten to the point where i did publish inside the outside myself if it weren't for Ani DeFranco. If Ani DeFranco didn't exist in the world, if she didn't completely inspire me to, you know, to, to try to be a maverick like her and try to, you know, blaze my own trail like her, and rather than trying to, you know, to follow the same trail that everybody else did, because that's what everybody else did, to take a chance, to gamble on myself, because, you know, as Chanel mentioned, there's also money involved. That's actually one of the hardest pills for a lot of independent authors to swallow, I think, is that, you know, you spend time writing a book, and the idea is, once I finish writing this book, somebody's going to pay me for it. <laughs> so, then, so then to go from, you know, I'm going to spend all this time writing this book, and not only is not is somebody not going to pay me for it, I'm going to put my own money into this. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really tough pill to swallow. It's the reason why you see a lot of shitty book covers, a lot of shitty editing, a lot of shitty whatever, because it's, it, you know, partly, well, I mean, you know, maybe not every author has enough money to do it exactly the way the way they want, but I do know a lot of authors just, they can't justify spending the money because mm-hmm. it's not, it's not, you know. It, it, You're it, not guaranteed that return. Yeah, and it's scary. I don't mind telling you guys, it was fucking terrifying. Like, it was, I, it, it, I had a lot of, I went to bed a lot of nights, like, not knowing if I was going to fully go through with it. And at the end of the day, you know, it, I don't know if this is going to sound like cliche or trite or whatever, but but I really said, you know, I mean, this is a gamble. I might not see this money again, but if I'm going to gamble on anybody, I got to gamble on myself. <laughs> I mean, if I, if, I, if I would expect some other publisher to gamble on me because I have faith that, that they could, you know, have a successful book through me, then I have to, I have to be willing to gamble on myself, and so, 
and so I did and and you know I, I I have you know I can't tell you how every day I'm excited to be a writer and I'm so excited to be a publisher and I'm so excited I can't wait to put out you know this this vampire trilogy and just everything that, that that's happening in my writing career it's just it's more amazing than I could have expected it to be and I can't stress the point enough that you know in no small Ani DeFranco played just just a huge role in you know in, in all of this happening right like like she's a you know she really did have she led by example right absolutely like she's one really great example of of being an indie artist and putting your art out there and having complete control over it and not having anybody tell you what to do and yeah it's awesome yeah and so you're welcome <laughs> so as you know as i said earlier yeah you... so without martin meeting me <laughs> me falling in love with ani defranco me forcing him to listen and yeah. forcing him to go to a show four hours early yeah inside the outside might not be in the world the really amazing vampire trilogy coming out might not be out in the world and just uh just a teaser for you guys i'm on book two <laughs> and it's really really good yeah and and you know while while Snell has every reason to be biased about you know my vampire trilogy and how much he's enjoying it i do know that you know you wouldn't want me to put out a book that wasn't ready to be sent out into the world no i'm actually really mean yeah and it's like i would totally tell you and you know i mean you love me and you wouldn't want to hurt my feelings but but, i would but you would you know for the world i would hurt your feelings for the world you would basically protect me by 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 you know give it to giving it to me straight yeah listen i've been with you almost 15 years yeah i know how to get around it and say it in a nice way <laughs> like i know how to work it into your psyche without being like this sucks i would never be that mean but i know what to do i know what yeah, to do you do you but do. it's really good honestly and and you know i mean going back to ani's influence on me obviously you know i would love to sell a million books and i would love to make a shitload of money but a big part of you know what ani defranco helps me keep in perspective is that's not really the point you know the point is especially for me you know in in terms of you know writing and publishing it's about exercising my craft and embracing my passion for writing and storytelling and more than anything else it's about connecting with readers because again if I write a story but nobody reads it you know I maybe I enjoy telling the story but it but it would never be complete it's not really complete until somebody picks up the story and then they read it and then they hopefully enjoy it and really that's 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 what it's about and so so Ani DeFranco played a huge role and I don't you know I've never met her and I don't know that I'll ever have an opportunity to meet her but if I do I can promise you that you know the 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 very first thing I'm going to tell her after you know I gush over how much I love her and her music and I think she's amazing I'll let her know that she completely inspired me to be an independent artist, to take my career into my own hands, and ultimately my destiny into my own hands, and that, you know, and that is working out beautifully, and she played just a a huge role in that. Now, uh, before we we start uh, wrapping things up, um, I wanted to share a, a letter that Ani DeFranco wrote. Uh, in 1997, Ani wrote an, an open letter to the editor of Ms. Ms. Magazine. Uh, help me, is it is it Ms. or Ms.? I don't know. 
I think the the appropriate term is Ms. Ms. Okay. Yeah. So Ms. But it's M S. Period. For those of you who can't look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you, you haven't heard if, of if it. If you wanted to look it up or yeah. find out more for yourself, it's M S. Period. Ms. And so Ani wrote an open letter to the editor in response to a short paragraph that appeared in their uh, September October 1997 issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're not familiar with with Ms. Then it's probably worth noting it's a liberal feminist magazine. It was co-founded in 1971 by uh, Gloria Steinem, who's a a very sort of iconic and well-known uh, feminist and social political activist. And so uh, Ani's letter, again, like I said, she she wrote it in 1997. So it's at this point it's uh, 17 years old. Jeez. If I'm doing my math right, yeah. even that sounds weird. To Which say. is funny because in 1997 I was 17 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so the. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even which though, is weird because I'm only like 23 right now. Exactly. So I yeah. don't know how that math That's works crazy. out. Crazy. I can't believe I <laughs> was dating you when you were so young. I know. Dirty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even though the the letter is 17 years old, the the ideas and the philosophies that she shared in this letter are every bit as powerful today as they were when she wrote it back in 1997. So I just want to read the letter to you guys because, again, it's 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 very powerful and it's very interesting. And it just, again, it's going to give you a really keen insight into, you know, Ani's point of view and, and literally her voice because this is, you know, her letter. So let me read this to you. It, it's going to take me a few minutes, so bear with me. November 5th, 1997. So I'm pouring through the 25th anniversary issue of Ms., on some airplane going somewhere in the amorphous blur that amounts to my life, and I'm finding it endlessly enlightening and stimulating as always, when, what do you know, I come across a little picture of little me. I was flattered to be included in that issue's 21 Feminists for the 21st Century thingy, Bob. I think y'all are running the most bold and babelicious magazine around, after all. Problem is, I couldn't help but be a little weirded out by the paragraph next to my head that summed up her meanness and my relationship to the feminist continuum. What got me was that it largely detailed my financial successes and sales statistics. My achievements were represented by the fact that I make more money per album sold than Hootie and the Blowfish, and that my catalog sales exceeded three quarters of a million. It was specified that I don't just have my own record company, but own my own profitable record company. Still, the ironic conclusion of the aforementioned blurb is a quote from me insisting it's not about the money. Why then, I ask myself, must the money be the focus of so much of the media that surrounds me? Why can't I escape it, even in the hallowed pages of Ms.? Firstly, this Hootie and the Blowfish business was not my doing. The LA Times financial section wrote an article about my record label, Righteous Babes Records, in which they raved about the business savvy of a singer, me, who thwarted the corporate overhead by choosing to remain independent, thereby pocketing $4.25 per unit, as opposed to the $1.25 made by Hootie or the $2 made by Michael Jackson. This story was then picked up and reprinted by the New York Times, Forbes Magazine, the Financial News Network, and, lo and behold, Ms. So here I am, publicly morphing into some kind of Fortune 500 young entrepreneur from hell, and all along, I thought I was just a folk singer. (laughs) 
Okay, it's true. I do make a much larger profit, percentage-wise, than the Hootster. What's even more astounding is that there are thousands of musicians out there who make an even higher profit percentage than me. How many local musicians are there in your community who play gigs and bars and coffee shops about town? I bet lots of them have made cassettes or CDs which they'll happily sell to you with a personal smile from the edge of the stage or back at the bar after their set. Would you believe these shrewd, profit-minded wheeler dealers are pocketing a whopping 100% of the profits on the sales of those puppies? Wait till the financial news network gets a whiff of them. <laughs> I sell approximately 2.5% of the albums that a Joan Jewelanis Morissette sells and get about half of a percent of the airplay royalties. So obviously, if it all comes down to dollars and cents, I've led a wholly unremarkable life. Yet, I choose relative statistical mediocrity over fame and fortune because I have a bigger purpose in mind. Imagine how strange it must be for a girl who has spent 10 years fighting as hard as she could against the lure of the corporate carrot and the almighty forces of capital, only to be eventually recognized by the power structure as a business pioneer. I have indeed sold enough records to open a small office on the half-abandoned main street in the dilapidated urban center of my hometown, Buffalo, New York. I am able to hire 15 or so folks to run and constantly reinvent the place while I drive around and play music for people. I am able to give stimulating business to local printers and manufacturers, and to employ the services of independent distributors, promoters, book agents, and publicists. I was able to quit my day job and devote myself to what I love. And yes, we are enjoying modest profits these days affording us the opportunity to reinvest in innumerable political and artistic endeavors. RBR is no Warner Brothers, but it is a going concern, and for me, it is a vehicle for redefining the relationship between art and commerce in my own life. It is a record company which is the product not just of my own imagination, but that of my friend and manager, Scott Fisher, and all of the people who work there. People who incorporate and coordinate politics, art, and media every day into a people-friendly, sub-corporate, woman-informed, queer-happy, small business that puts music before rock stardom and ideology before profit. And me. I'm just a folk singer, not an entrepreneur. My hope is that my music and poetry will be enjoyable and or meaningful to someone, somewhere, not that I maximize my profit margins. It was 15 years and 11 albums getting to this place of notoriety. And if anything, I think I was happier way back when. Not that I regret any of my decisions, mind you. I'm glad I didn't sign on to the corporate army. I mourn the commodification and homogenization of music by the music industry. And I fear the manufacture of consents by the corporately controlled media. Last thing I want to do is feed the machine. I was recently mortified while waiting in the dressing room before one of my own shows. Some putz suddenly takes the, the stage to announce me and exclaim excitedly that this was my largest sold-out crowd to date. Oh really, I'm thinking to myself. That's interesting. Too bad it's not the point. All of my achievements are artistic, as are all of my failures. That's just the way I see it. Statistical plateau or no. I'll bust ass for 60 people or 6,000. 
watch me. I have so much respect for Ms. Magazine. If I couldn't pick it up at newsstands, my brain probably would have atrophied by now on some transatlantic flight, and I would be lying limp and twitchy in a bed of constant travel, staring blankly into the abyss of the gossip magazines. Ms. is a structure of media wherein women are able to define themselves and articulate for themselves those definitions. We wouldn't point to 21 of the feminists moving into the 21st century and define them in terms of, here's Becky Ballbuster from Iowa City. She's got a great ass and a cute little button nose. <laughs> no, ma'am. We've gone beyond the limited perceptions of sexism, and so we should move beyond the language and perspective of the corporate patriarchy. The financial news network may be ultimately impressed with me now that I've proven to them that there's a life beyond the auspices of Papa Sony, but do I really have to prove this to you? We have the ability and the opportunity to recognize women not just for the financial successes of their work, but for the work itself. We have the facility to judge each other by entirely different criteria than those imposed upon us by the superstructure of society. We have a view which reaches beyond profit margins into poetry and a vocabulary to articulate the difference. Thanks for including me, Ms. Really, But just promise me one thing. If I drop dead tomorrow, tell me my gravestone won't read Ani D, CEO. <laughs> Please let it read songwriter, music maker, storyteller, freak. <laughs> Ani DeFranco. And that was Ani's <laughs> open letter to Ms. Magazine. And I just thought that was fucking brilliant that's awesome <laughs> and again you know she that's that that letter is 17 years old and everything and that's in really the, that's really before the record industry like did crash yeah like she was sort of ahead of her time oh like, yeah almost like she knew yeah i mean yeah <laughs> you know, like that's the irony that uh you know the 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 basically that the, business model's basically <laughs> failed and she's still trucking away yeah she's she doesn't even have to do the crazy big tours like she used no, to no. much to our chagrin because she yeah. doesn't come to southern california very much at all anymore. yeah from, from that first, we used to go every single every year. year it was like it was like a holiday for us yeah like we looked forward to it yeah. and from from that show in 2002 I don't. I don't think we missed a year there was maybe like three years there was like one one year that i missed and I don't remember why. It could have been money or something. Because I mean, I fucking love Ani. So you went with somebody else. Yeah. But um, that, that's the only show I remember missing. But we went every year, and it, and it was awesome. And and we basically knew that she yeah. toured almost year round, and at some point she would pass through Southern California. But in the last few years, she's not been coming to yeah. SoCal. And she's been touring. Just oh yeah. Sort of on the east. Yeah. Because we're both on the, the Righteous Babes mailing list. Yeah, of course. They send us emails to brag about, you know, yeah. where Who she's else performing. Gets to see her? And yeah. she's great. She's really great live. Like, she truly, even if you don't know the songs or you don't know who she is, she's, I think, genuinely a, an artist that anybody can enjoy. Oh, she's And amazing. again, just based on, like, the passion and the energy and her busting guitar strings as she plays. <laughs> She's yeah, she's amazing. So we're gonna go ahead and wrap up, but before we before we we wrap up, I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to leave on on, on a note in terms of Ani DeFranco and her concerts because because really again that's kind of where this whole thing started was an Ani DeFranco concert, and because Chanel and I we've been fortunate enough that we've seen we've seen her in concert a whole lot. We want to see her more. 
if we never see her again, then I guess in all fairness, we've we've seen her. We've seen a lot of a shows. Lot of we her. can't even count how many, really. <laughs> but um, I figure we would kind of wrap up with just briefly maybe talking about our favorite Ani shows, if uh, if you can think of, you know, of all the performances, if you can think of one that, you, that really stands Gosh. out to you. I guess the one I think of that stands out the most was um, we saw her at Humphrey's Concerts by the Bay. I think it was uh, 2007. Yeah. It's this really great, um, it's basically a hotel. Mm-hmm. It's the Half Moon, Half Moon Inn, is Something that what it's like called? Something like that, yeah. I think it's the Half Moon Inn in San Diego, California. And they do a summer concert series. Yeah. So basically it's the back of the hotel and it's right on the bay. Yeah. So there's water and there's boats and they put all these seats outside and there's a stage. It is just stunningly beautiful. It's amazing. It is beautiful. You got the water there. Yeah. You've got the stage. It's outdoors. Oh, yeah. it's lovely. So I, it's like, and it's, and it's actually great sound. That's a venue that has good sound. So yeah. you're by the water, you're outside. I can't think of a better way to see Ani DeFranco yeah. than there. Yeah. And then at that show, um, we actually discovered also Anais Mitchell. Oh, she's wonderful. Who um, was just delightful. Such, such a talented um, songwriter, musician. She's so brilliant. She's, and so sweet. <laughs> yeah, we actually, we. it's so funny because, you know, we we essentially, we kind of met her sort of before the show. I don't know if you remember this. I do. Because we were there early. Uh, I think. That might have been... The, I think we took my mom to that show. Yes, your mom was there. And so we were there a little bit early. And it was in San Diego. So anytime we get to go to San Diego, it was nice. We'd spent the day in San Diego, me, you know, Chanel and my mom. And then we went to, to Humphreys and we were walking around. And we passed by Anais Mitchell as we were kind of walking through. And we didn't know who she was. We had no idea she was the opening act. And she was just by herself. And she, and she, you know, and she saw us. And, you know, she smiled like she wanted to stop and say hello and have a conversation with us and you know i think i'm sure we smiled back and kind of kept moving yeah i think we kind of mumbled out like hi hey, hey whatever <laughs> and then we kept going and then an hour or so later she comes out on stage and we're like wait a minute is yeah that, <laughs> and we're that, going oh <laughs> why didn't we we what are we assholes why didn't we why didn't we talk to her yeah it was such a good show just yeah. a really good set from ani just just the environment. I think that's got to be my favorite. Yeah, I can't believe you stole that one from me. That's a good pick. <laughs> um, well, so so the show that I think about, on top of that one, because that's, that's a great one too, is uh, is another one that we saw in San Diego. Uh, this one, and you're going to have to help me with the venue because I'm bad at this. I think it was the Copley. Oh, yeah, Copley, Copley Symphony Hall. That's what it's called, yeah. Yeah. That one was probably the year before. And that one for me was special for a couple of reasons. Not the least of which it was Ani, and she's you know amazing. Yeah, and that's a great venue too. It's a really wonderful venue, but it, so at that point we'd been you and I we'd been dating for six years, six seven years, something yeah. like that. Wow. And we were, um, I think we were, we graduated. I got my master's degree. You've got your bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. It was the summer, so we were we were out of school. Yeah. And we'd uh, it was in San Diego, so we thought well, well, let's make a weekend of it. So we got this. We found, you know, uh, an affordable little hotel room in San Diego, like one or two blocks from the venue. And so I remember, we, you know, being in this, it was, it was like a tiny, it was almost like a little tiny studio apartment, like really small. Yeah, it was like not, it was like a motel. It wasn't yeah. even a hotel. I think it had like three rooms. Yeah. It was probably somebody's like nice house that they <laughs> converted. <laughs> and so I, I remember there was like a little refrigerator maybe and like just the bed and the TV, teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. But I remember, you know, it was one of, it was, it was kind of the, the first sort of time that I thought, you know, 
we could do this. <laughs> like, we could live together. This is nice. It is nice sort of being in this place together and hanging out. <laughs> and then we're going to take a nice little walk and go to the venue. This is nice. We could do this. You know? <laughs> and we might have even said as much out loud. But even if we didn't, like I, that was a that that was a really that thought it sticks out very strong for me. And, 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 and you know, and it was it was literally like maybe five or six months later that we got our first apartment together. Yeah. So, so I think there was a very, you know, deliberate connection there. But then the other thing, uh, why that stands out, and, and again, it was Ani's opening act. And if you don't remember, <laughs> you're going to be jealous that you didn't pick this one. It's when we discovered Buddy Wakefield. Oh, yeah. And Gosh, I forgot about that. We're going to have to, you know, we can't. He's so good. It would be a disservice to try to sum up Buddy Wakefield here. Jesus we're going to have to give him his own episode. But suffice it to say, he, he's a he's a spoken word poet, a slam poet, if you will. Yeah. Uh, he's a two-time world champion, slam poetry world champion. You might not have even known such a title existed. <laughs> yeah. But he, you know, he's, yeah. he, he won and it And you twice. guys, again, might be like, ew, poetry, boring. No. This is like performance art it's a oh, it's like so amazing. it's it just like punches you in the stomach like in the heart as soon as this episode is over if you went on youtube and just looked up buddy wakefield and just start listening to to him perform his poetry you're gonna you're gonna be awfully grateful mm-hmm. to... he's one of those people who like you could listen to like read a phone book oh my god he's amazing like he's just got this magic to him and I could have met him, and I was too. He was 15 feet away from me. It's it's a whole different story. We'll save it for another episode. <laughs> but I still, to this day, regret that I chickened out. That he was right there, and there was nobody else. It was just he and I, and there was this empty space. <laughs> and I'm sure he's very nice. And all I had to do was say hello. I'm a big fan of what you're doing, and I and I chickened <laughs> out. But I'll tell you guys about that another time. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, uh, that's that's basically going to do it. Before we go, we just want to remind you, as usual, if you have any shopping to do, please do that on Amazon.com. And when you go to Amazon.com, please go through the official website of this podcast, martinlestrapshow.com. Go to the shop page, click on the Amazon banner. It's going to take you through. While you're there, buy some Ani DeFranco CDs. Yeah. And she's got a couple of books, at least one that I can think of. Buy, buy a Buddy Wakefield CD. Buy an Anais Mitchell CD. Buy one of each, and you're going to be very grateful to us that you did that. You and, could buy the whole Ani DeFranco catalog. Yeah, do just, it on Amazon. Just get started, because you're going to want them all anyway. And not only will you be grateful to us that we the, that we sent you there, but we're going to be grateful, because the money you spend on Amazon, Amazon's going to kick back a few pennies our way. We get to reinvest that into the podcast. And that allows us to make this show as good as we can possibly make it. And I know I'm speaking for Chanel as well, that that's exactly what we want to do for you guys. We want this to be, we want this show to be as good as we can possibly make it week after week. And so any, any shopping you do at Amazon, just know that that helps us out a, a great deal. Um, I guess that, that about wraps it up. Any, any right, final I've, thoughts? I've got, I've got one more. Go for um, it. Favorite Ani DeFranco song. Oh, shit. You're going to put me on the spot. Yeah. Well, I mean the the go to song is Gravel, oh, obviously. Yeah. Gravel's so good. But that's that's an easy one. But a good one, <sighs> nonetheless. A very respectable favorite song. I'm so bad with titles. I can, I can. Here's what, here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> take take a minute to talk about your favorite. I'm gonna look up the song that I know that I love. Cheater. But, but go ahead and talk about yours. Um, I obviously have several. Obviously, I think we both do. Um, I think for me, 
Um, Untouchable Face is one of my favorites. And that's partly because that was on the first album um, that was on Dilate. That was the first album of Ani's that I'd gotten. The first one I'd really listened to. And, like, that song was amazing. Not the least of which one of the lyrics is, fuck you and your untouchable face. And it's just this great, like, kind of seething song about this, like, sort of unattainable love, this sort of broken love. Um, it's so fucking good. And and then Marrow, the one we talked about earlier. That's a good one. And Marrow is just a very slow, melancholy, but just the lyrics are just great. It really is poetry. I have so many, but yeah, I'm going to stick with those two. Untouchable Face, because it was one of the, one of my first loves. And then Marrow came a little bit later. I know, well, uh, for me, and I'm still, I'm still doing a little bit of research, but I know it was one of her more recent albums. Oh, you know, Re- Recoil. I love Recoil. I think that's the one I was going to look for. Is that the one? That's the one. You know what? I'll, I'll stop the research now. That's exactly the song I was going to try to find, Recoil. Oh, that song is... And I take pride in this, because the, the album that that one was on, I believe it was Knuckle Down. Yes. And you were not excited about Knuckle Down. It didn't. Uh, it didn't tickle my fancy. And I, on first listen. And so I took it off your hand. I mean, I borrowed it. I didn't like take it from you. <laughs> and I was listening to this album, and for me, it was just I was fucking blown away. At least half the album for me was just you know. Yeah, that album's the got a lot of great songs. And so I think similar to, <laughs> we we kind of reverse roles and and, and with. That when you listen to the album, essentially through my appreciation, uh, and specifically when I was mm-hmm. playing the songs that I really loved, including mm-hmm. you know Recoil, uh, you came to love that album a whole lot more. I do love that album a whole lot. You're right, yeah, Recoil's good. There's another great song on there too. There's a lot of them. The one about uh, with her parents, and yeah, her mom. And... That, that's actually Ugh, that's the, so good. That's I can't the one. Think of it that was the one that I was actually going to initially pick. Um, in fact, Skipping Stones. What's it called? I think. That might be a different song. Well, we're failing here. We we didn't even discuss this at all. <laughs> this was a uh, but, but that's okay. But that's I just okay. thought I'd throw in a wrench there. But um, but yeah, there's just so so many good songs. She's amazing. She's a really great writer and a great singer, great guitarist. Yeah, I heart her. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, if this episode did nothing else, it's gonna inspire you to to look into Ani DeFranco, and then hopefully you'll love her as much as we do. Yeah. So anyway. We've been going on long enough. You guys have got we'll shit to now. do. So uh, Yeah, you have a lot of Ani to catch up on, so we're that's gonna true. let you go. Yeah, you you've got a week to do your Ani, you know, research. Yeah. Uh and then, then we're gonna be back with another episode next week. Yeah. Um until next week, I hope you guys enjoy the whole rest of your week. Thank you so much for joining us again for the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. And until next time, I will see you on the other side. Peace out, bitches.